At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is Negative M. I.P. With Masamela Matfumal. Mark Thompson. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, um, for those of you who have followed Make It Plain over the years, we've always tried to do something special and extraordinary during African American History Month, Black History Month. And over the years we've had a number of the iconic african scholars who are now ancestors join us from dr joseph benyakinen to dr sharshi mcintyre to dr john henry clark uh, to dr leonard jeffries to dr francis cress welsing um, to dr renoko rashidi who was with us more recently all of these great icons have transitioned to the ancestral realm. This year, someone who really we owe a great deal of gratitude for introducing many in the larger sphere and the larger community to these icons. Um, years ago, he began to organize programs and lectures where these icons could be seen and heard by the masses and he has in fact now uh, inherited the mantle from some of these great scholars not only in terms of his research and writing but in terms of the tours he's provided whether they be here in this country particularly in washington dc or in kemet in egypt itself so i thought we would spend this month with him as i alluded to he is an author and a publisher a cultural historian, an artist, and an educational consultant. He's a graduate of Howard University and has lectured extensively throughout the United States and five continents. He's the founder and director of IKG Cultural Resources and has devoted 43 years researching ancient Egyptian history, science, philosophy, and culture. He's traveled to Egypt 64 times since 1980 and is currently director of the ASA Restoration Project, which is funding the excavation and restoration of three 25th dynasty tombs of Kushite noblemen on the West Bank of Luxor, Egypt. He is the first African-American to fund and coordinate an archeological dig in Egypt and has led more than 30 archaeological missions to Egypt since 2009. He's co-authored and co-authored 14 publications, which are currently used in classrooms around the world and has three decades of study that have led him to the conclusion that ancient Africans were the architects of civilization 
and develop the rudiments of what has become the scientific, religious, and philosophical backbone of mankind. It is from this framework that IKG has concentrated its research and disseminated its findings. And so we are honored to have with us for what I know will be a fruitful and enlightening and blessed discussion through this month, our dear brother, Anthony Browder. Hey, man. Well, thank you so much, brother, for that wonderful introduction and also for allowing me to be on the program this month. Long, long overdue. Um, and I don't know now that we sit here, as I mentioned, all the ancestors of transition who were once elders. I don't know if that makes us elders now. Uh, well, I claim my eldership, brother. I turned 70 last year, so I'm claiming it. Which I don't believe. Those of you seeing this on video, uh, Tony does not look older than me at all. Um, but brother, you've clearly been blessed by the ancestors and the elders and the work you're doing. And, and I'm thankful for you, man. And it's it's great to see you and you you look well. well so you, I, I wanna give audience an opportunity, one, to learn a bit about the work you've been doing and also learn a bit about our history because I know you and I have always agreed. And that's been part of the struggle, hasn't it, Tony, that to understand that our history um, did not begin with slavery. <laughs> you know, one of uh, Dr. Clark's favorite sayings was that if you begin your history in slavery, everything since then looks like progress. Yeah. So um, my first trip to Egypt <clears throat> was with Dr. Ben in 1980. And after taking that trip, I was amazed to discover all of the knowledge carved on temples, uh, tombs, that is over 5,000 years old, that clearly illustrates the legacy, historical and cultural legacy of African people. And I was never taught that information. It wasn't until 1977, brother, I graduated from Howard in 74. In 1977, February 21st, 1977, I went to hear Ivan Van Sertema speak at Georgetown Law School. He had just published, They Came Before Columbus, The African Presence in America. He wowed me with his presentation of the Omex who came to Mexico and brought architecture, religion, and technology to the indigenous people there. But then he ended that presentation by saying that these Africans were from Egypt and the Egyptians were black. That was the first time in my life. February 21st, 1977 was the first time in my life anyone ever told me that the ancient Egyptians were black. I was blown away. Yeah, yeah. And and honestly, Tony, help us understand even the timing of that revelation. How how widespread was that conversation, even in the academic um, uh, circles as, 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 as early as 1977? Well, you know, we have to realize that the field of Egyptology was essentially started by white men who were brilliant scholars, but they were also racist. Flanders Petrie, uh, George Reisner, and um, James Henry Breasted. Breasted was at the University of Chicago, uh, founded the Oriental Institute. Reisner was at Harvard, and, and, and uh, Petrie was, was based in London. These men, as brilliant as they were, were also a product of their time, and they believed in the inherent inferiority 
of black people, of African people. And so they could look at these images um, on the tombs, they could look at the face of Haramaka, the Sphinx, and because of cognitive dissonance, they could not accept the African images that were staring them in the face, and so they lied. They covered up the truth. And, and the, one of the things that Brother Lynn Jeffries shared with me back in the 80s when I first met him, he said that whoever controls the history of Egypt stands at the head of the human family. And so these races had to falsify the truth and take Egypt out of Africa and separate African people from their own history and culture and feed the world lies about the mothers and fathers of culture and civilization. So when I first became aware of this falsification of African history, I wanted to know more. And that's what led me to seek out the works of Dr. Ben, Dr. Clark, John Jackson, and others. And then once I went to Egypt with Dr. Ben and saw with my own eyes information that had intentionally been withheld from me throughout elementary school, high school, and college, I knew that I had to take on the responsibility of sharing this new knowledge with every Black life that mattered to me. More MIP after this message. And but those in Egyptology kind of took their cue, didn't they, from those who, from the Greeks who first went to Egypt and, and stole everything in the first place, right? Well, well, look, well, let me let me kind of correct that myth. Okay. Because <clears throat> the Greeks came to Egypt as students to study at the feet of Africans. So if you look at the first Greeks who came into Egypt, uh, Pythagoras, um, they came to study African knowledge and they went home acknowledging what they had found in Egypt. So when Alexander comes, in, comes to Egypt in 332 BC and conquers Egypt, Alexander, standing in the shadow of African greatness, rejected his father, Philip of Macedonia, and claimed that he was a son of a moon. And when he died, he was buried in Africa. So after Alexander's death, his general Ptolemy gained control of the territory that we now call Egypt, because originally the original name of Egypt was Kemet, an African word, which means the nation of the black people. Egypt is a Greek word, which describes uh, one temple in the Northern part of the country. And so what Ptolemy did was to follow in the footsteps of other African rulers. They married African women so that the children who were born from that union would be viewed as the legitimate heirs to the throne. And they claimed themselves to be an extension or an, a continuation of the ancient Kemetic legacy. They marshaled their forces in Alexandria, the city in the Northern part of, of, uh, of Egypt, right on the Mediterranean. And they then created the first open education policy and opened the doors to Greeks to come to Egypt and study 3,000 years of Egyptian mathematics, engineering, astronomy, architecture, science, and philosophy. So they freely, the, the, the Greeks freely acknowledged that Egypt was the source of their knowledge. It was only later when, when races came on the scene and began to classify people by color that they had to lift up Greece at the expense of Egypt. So that's where you know these falsehoods come in, and that is the essence of the stolen legacy, which Georgie and James wrote about. And um, it, it, so, in terms of of those coming in and, and lifting up one culture over the other, you mentioned Alexander 
332 BC. One of the things that, that Tony does, folks, and, and, and I have, my son has one, others have seen it, some of you may have seen it on video. Um, he pulls out an, a timeline and it stretches, I don't know how many feet. Well, uh, the large timeline is 19 feet, the small one is nine feet. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 let's let's do the years. 332 BC. How much how many years of comedic history prior to that are we talking about? Okay. The first recorded date in history is 4,230 BC. That date was recorded in Kemet. That represents the first use of a calendar of 365 and a quarter days, 4,230 BC. And BC in this instance, brother, means before Caucasians, right? So, <laughs> so uh, if, if we study Greek history and Roman history, looking at the timeline, we know that, that Homer, the first European writer of note, did not write the Iliad and the Odyssey until about 834 BC. And Romulus and Remus, the mythological founders of Rome, did not create that nation state until about 730 BC. So Greece and Rome becomes the foundation of European culture and civilization. It's rooted in Greco-Roman history and culture. So in order to perpetuate this myth of white superiority, they had to erase all the history that preceded it and say that philosophy and science and medicine began with the Greeks. That's why the Greeks are sitting on top of the pedestal. But if you go to Greece and look at the greatness of Greece architecture, Greek architecture, say the Parthia, the Pantheon, Parthenon, for example, the Parthenon pales in comparison to the smallest temple in Egypt. There's no comparison whatsoever. So we have to have, we have to use a timeline in order to put history in its proper context so that we know where Africans fit in and where Europeans uh, come in. Dr. Clark often said that over half of human history was over before the first European wrote a book or lived in a house with a window. And that's a fact, it's a historical fact. Anthony Browder, folks, um, is our special guest this month during african-american history month and he's going to be with us every day um and so we we're kicking off this first day um i, I do want to say this before we leave today um when i have it here it is in front of me once you all if you want more information we invite you to go to ikg-info.com or asa restorationproject.com asa restorationproject.com and during the course of the month we're going to be talking about the the restoration project which is fascinating put 2025 on the calendar um and also a number of other things that our brother has been working on and been involved in and so african american history month folks is underway with anthony browder keep it locked in tell everyone about this tell them to subscribe and make it plain so we can hear more of our history. We thank you for joining us this month, Tony. My pleasure, brother. Anytime. More MIP after this message. Ladies and gentlemen, honored to have on Make It Plain a member of Congress with a brand new book out. We all know him, Representative Ro Khanna. 
his book, Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us. Representative, welcome to the show and congratulations on the book. Reverend, thank you. It's really an honor to be on. I'm a fan of the show and your voice and appreciate uh, being on with your listeners. Well, thank you. And I'm, I'm a fan of yours as well and all the great progressive work that, that you're doing. Um, first of all, on the book, um, talk to us about the inspiration for the book and, and the timing. We still have a great deal and a wide digital divide in America, don't we? Reverend, we do. And uh, my district, there's $11 trillion of market cap, Apple, Google, Intel, Yahoo, went up 40% during the pandemic. And yet uh, a lot of Americans are totally left out of the engine of modern wealth generation. You don't have opportunities in rural America. You don't have the same opportunities in uh, black America, in Latino communities. Uh, the thesis, one of the theses of the book is you can't overcome the racial wealth gap without overcoming the racial wealth generation gap. You can't have things like Clubhouse popularized by the African-American community, but no one is there actually when it comes to the venture capital or on the board or making the, the profits. And so the book is really saying, how do we get the opportunities of the modern economy uh, to places and people who've been totally left out of it? I know you have, if I'm not mistaken, advocated for um, regulation in this, in this new economy and in Silicon Valley. Is that one of the ways we can get there and try to close that gap? Absolutely. I mean, the there's no doubt that we need regulation when it comes to some of the hate speech that's incited violence. I mean, people say, oh, First Amendment, but uh, for everyone to have a First Amendment right to speak, we have to make these forums places that are welcoming uh, uh, people. And you can't have violent uh, hate speech that makes the places uh, unwelcoming. But more than the regulations uh, on data privacy, uh, on speech, I think we have to be intentional uh, about encouraging the investments and partnerships with uh, land-grant universities, with HBCUs, incentivizing the capital. I mean, $120 billion of venture capital. And guess how much goes to uh, Black or Latina women of color every year? It's less than 0.3%. I mean, these are embarrassing statistics. I did an op-ed with the great John Lewis, uh, one of the great honors, and he said, well, technology rights are the new civil rights. Uh, and I, I don't think people fully grasp with 25 million digital jobs in the engine of modern wealth generation, how problematic it is that huge segments of our country are excluded from these opportunities. And you mentioned the jobs, even in the jobs, right? I mean, it's, it's not easy for people of color to, to find jobs in Silicon Valley, is it? It's not. And it's it's often, you know, we had a situation, we Zoom did a partnership with Claflin, which is one of the really well-known HBCUs. And at first, I mean, I had other companies and it was embarrassing. Claflin's dean kept sending me uh, 4.0 resumes to that company and they kept getting rejected, uh, not Zoom, other companies. And so there's a cultural issue in terms of, recruiting and uh, in terms of people having the cultural knowledge on how to do a whiteboard interview and all of the questions that get asked. Then there is a network issue. You know, you graduate out of Stanford 
I had, because I got the ch chance to teach there, I had students who had funding before they were even out of Stanford because they had these networks. Well, that's not the case for most, most people. And then even if you get one of these jobs, then um, you're often uh, the only person of color on your team. Uh, it, you don't necessarily rise up. And so the recruitment is not just the challenge, it's the retention. And finally, are you part of the stock options? Are you part of the wealth generation? Uh, so there is a huge levels of exclusion. And one of the important things to recognize is it's not a lack of interest or lack of talent. Uh, the, one of the studies I cite shows that actually African-American young people have more interest, more interest in computer science than uh, people in other races. This is actually documented. And yet something happens that does not allow us to take advantage of their talent and passion. And it's it's wrong. Yeah. And you're right about the culture. That statistics you just shared. Most don't know that, including many African-Americans, because what's presented is there are only certain cultures now that are predisposed to wanting to be in the tech world. Um, and even our self-perception is 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 that there is not an interest and definitely a perception that there's not excellence in education in that regard. When, as we know, a lot of kids are out here studying that and trying to get um, in, into that field. Um, beyond the regulation, though, I mean, that's not the only thing. What else can be done to change this atmosphere? I think the boards need to be diversified, first of all, because if you don't have accountability at the top of people who are women, people of color, uh, people from rural communities, uh, you're not going to have a change in uh, in attitude. Second, you know, the federal government is a big purchaser of IT service, billions and billions of dollars. If you were to have an incentive to say, look, 10% of your workforce needs to be in a rural community, 10% of your workforce needs to be uh, diverse, uh, you would suddenly incentivize these companies to find the talent. And let me tell you, the talent is is there. There are a lot of places that have the talent. They need the, the opportunity, and the opportunity is not going to happen if we don't create uh, the proper uh, economic incentives. And and by the way, you know, with COVID, we realize not everything has to be in Silicon Valley. You can be working remotely and have these opportunities. The third is that there has to be a partnership with the private sector in these courses. So one of the big misconceptions is, oh, you got to go become a coder, and it's going to require a tremendous amount of uh, software engineering skills. Yeah, that's for some jobs, but not for a lot of jobs. A lot of these jobs, it requires a 10-month course, but it's got to be the right type of course. And it's got to be in partnership with some of these companies that know how to what they need for uh, understanding the interviews, that know what it means to get an actual job. So you don't just have people taking these training courses and then not getting employed. Uh, and uh, I think all of those things will, will go uh, some way. Rodney Sampson, who is Opportunity Hub is, is, is really thoughtful about this. And he talks about having a goal, 2025, a million uh, African-Americans in the digital space, uh, especially with 25 million digital jobs. It's not a lot to say there should be a million. We're far off from that. But if we actually had a concerted effort, that's achievable. And that is where the economy is going, uh, where the technology is going. So people have to really, there's got to be an effort at bringing people along. We also look in the school system. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you too have advocated um, that every student in America, and we see this now more than ever after the pandemic, 
should have a laptop. I mean, when, when kids were home during COVID, some of them either didn't have internet or they didn't have a laptop. Um, you're talking about all the venture capital and money that's flowing. That ought to be something that's easy. The $5 billion, which is a drop in the bucket compared to, we spend $120 billion every year on venture capital. And here's the thing, it's not just to make sure kids can do their homework. Of course, that's a challenge. You don't want to have to compete with your brother or sister to be able to do your homework, but it's more than that. It's about the aspiration. If someone grows up without a laptop, and I talked to someone you know, was at a, a well-known HBCU, and she said a lot of her classmates didn't have laptops. Are we really signaling to them that they're gonna be part uh, of the modern economy? You know, all this stuff about people in Silicon Valley being self-made, yeah, it's true. They're not Donald Trump. They didn't have millions and millions of dollars, but I'll tell you what they had. They usually went to a good private school. They certainly had access to computers at a young age. They certainly had healthcare. They had nutrition. They lived in pretty safe neighborhoods and they had the luxury to dream, meaning if they failed, they knew they had a safety net with at least upper middle class parents. Those, the, giving a laptop is the basic to telling someone they've got a shot in, in this new economy. Um, Congressman, how much of what you prescribe in the book, how much of that overlaps with Build Back Better? Is, wouldn't that bill address some of this? Build Back Better is the beginning, the start. Yeah. I mean, let me say this, the, the, the preschool education, making sure every kid gets a preschool education. You know how far back we are? You know, France started doing this in 1890. The ICL system there, basically everyone at the age of six is uh, in preschool, has had preschool. And whether you're the son of a billionaire or the son of a working class, you start out at a relatively equal level, level there because you've had quality preschool. Imagine if we did that here, and this is so important in my view to understand, it's not just about teaching tech and coding. You, don't, you want to understand what people had who have succeeded in Silicon Valley, it's they had a great education before preschool and uh, up through uh, at least high school. And that ought to be the building blocks for uh, a modern economy. And then you look at Build Back Better and what it would do in terms of the investment in, in climate. And, and these are the new jobs. These are so much of the new technology jobs are going to be in solar and wind and battery and, and, and building things uh, for, for technology. That's absolutely essential. And then on healthcare, name me one Silicon Valley entrepreneur who says they're self-made and, and, and ask them, you know, did you have a, a challenge getting treated by a doctor? Were your parents not able to afford your medicine? Ask them that, you know, they're self-made. Yeah, they're self-made compared to uh, people who've inherited millions of dollars. Yeah, they started a business, but we take for granted, like the air we breathe, many of the folks out there, that we have good health, that we have good education. I don't understand why that's so hard to, to do for every American in a digital age where we know that the investment in human people is the biggest investment any country can make. It's not just about morality and human dignity. It's about actually being smart and making that investment. And that's ultimately, in my view, the president's vision, why he's so passionate about Build Back Better. Where are we on that? Is, is, do you see any hope for that getting through? Is it going to have to be uh, broken up into different pieces? What, what, what do you think? The um, hope is that uh, we can uh, make sure that the 
biggest elements, the free public education, the free preschool, the climate part, the expansion of Medicare get through, and then we vote on everything else separately. I think we can get there. Senator Manchin has said that he is for the climate provisions. He has said that he is for the preschool. Every kid, three and four-year-old kid should get preschool. He said he's for some of the childcare provisions. So I think we can get there uh, on a compromise. It's not going to be what I wanted. It's not going to be what the House progressives wanted, uh, but it's going to be historic and it moves the ball forward. And then let's vote on everything else and run on that in the election. Uh, one other thing, and you mentioned the whole speech issue and, you know, people, freedom of speech also requires people feeling comfortable in that space. Uh, one of the things we now know is that many of these these algorithms, for example, on social media actually promote conflict. Um, for example, you and I have this conversation, you know, we'll post it on social media, but it would go viral if you and I had an argument. If we started fighting right here <laughs> in this in this conversation, it would just go completely viral. You know, what do we do about that? Because I mean, I think that too is a part of the problem and it lends itself to some of the divisions and confusions and, and insurrectionist thinking, if you will, that the more conflict that you put out there, the more interest and the more promotion that it gets. You've hit the nail on the head. I mean, the reality is conflict sells, uh, the anger sells, and what these algorithms do is they take the worst of human impulse and they put it uh, in the, the feeds of those who are most vulnerable. They say, okay, you're going to uh, like uh, listening to this outrage and this, uh, these conspiracy theories. And it, the, the, the problem with so social media is that they have this view that just let people talk and any speech is fine. But you and I know that that's not the, the, the right way of a democracy, that there are thoughtful ways of having speech and not thoughtful ways of having speech. You've spent your whole career thinking about thoughtful ways of engaging people. And instead of uplifting that, instead of having any sense of what may be good uh, for democracy, they're looking simply at profits and engagement. Uh, you would have a very different show if uh, all you cared about were ratings. You wouldn't have me on. Let's just be candid. I mean, there are a hundred other people you could get on, uh, which would probably be more interesting uh, for views. But you have a view that you have some responsibility to public discourse. And uh, social media lacks that. And that's uh, a big problem. It needs a regulation uh, as a solution, but it also needs uh, an entirely different culture and ethic. Indeed, indeed. Congressman Ro Khanna's book is out, folks. Do check it out. This is the next frontier uh, that we've got to uh, explore uh, and make work for all of us. That's the title of the book, Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us. This is a timely discussion, one that needs to be had. And who better to have it than one who represents Silicon Valley? Well, he's their congressman. Uh, I don't know how much they let him represent them. I'm sure they have issues because he's holding them accountable. Uh, and he ought to. We, we're appreciative of that. Dignity in a Digital Age, wherever you get your books, wherever books are sold by Congressman Roe Khanna. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic.
If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt, a classic zip-up hoodie that used to be navy blue but has since faded to what the fashionistas call a distressed indigo. It's 13 years old, soft as a flannel bathrobe, and after a few hundred dirty jobs, demonstrably and undeniably indestructible. This is the kind of sweatshirt girlfriends like to permanently borrow, but I've held on to this one because I got it from American Giant. American Giant makes all their stuff right here in the USA so they can control every link in their own supply chain. That matters. Because when you buy American Giant, you not only get great quality, you create jobs for people in factory towns all over the country. No pressure, but if you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American-Giant.com Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com Mike. 